Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we, we come before you and we ask, Lord, we live in a world that is so superficial, so surface-driven, so performance-driven. And I pray, God, that you by your spirit would be here to speak to us, to challenge us, and God, to delve into our hearts, to show us where we need to change as well. God, I thank you that we don't have to live for other people's approval. We don't have to look to other people to get our worth. But said, Lord Jesus, everything is in you. Who we are, our identity, our faults, our failures, our successes, all these things, they belong to you. And I thank you, God, that you are merciful and compassionate to us. I pray you'd be with us this morning, but in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. If you are visiting with us, we want to say welcome uh, to you. We are continuing on a series we started a few weeks ago called The Seven. We're looking at the seven deadly sins. But let's recap, because it's been a couple of weeks since we uh, were on this topic. Let's kind of talk about where we were. Remember I said to you that the seven deadly sins were meant to be a spiritual diagnostic tool to understand our hidden nature. Here's a question I want to ask you. How do you know if you're spiritually healthy? How do you know if you're spiritually growing? What questions do you ask of yourself? Because many of us will actually say, you know what, it's fine. And again, we talk about the, uh, the postmodern litmus test of if you're a good person. I haven't killed anybody, so I must be a good person, right? That's how we look at ourselves, say, well, I, I must be a good person. Maybe even sitting here this morning, like, like I, I, I battle through traffic and construction and sitting here, that means I'm a good person. The, the question we really have to ask ourselves is, what deeper ways can we look at ourselves and say, is this something, is there something in my life that needs to be uh, changed or corrected or transformed? Remember we talked about how the seven deadly sins came out of the third century and then modified in the sixth century. And the two guys behind it simply were trying to say, what is it in your life that you need to change? What is it you're struggling with? What is keeping you from transforming into Jesus' image? Last week, we looked at this idea of, uh, two weeks ago, sorry, we looked at pride. And I said to you that pride was a process. Remember I told you the three steps of pride? The first step was that pride isolates. The second step is that pride inflates. And the third step is pride stagnates. And remember we looked at the enemy, the devil, as the perfect uh, uh, character of what pride does, right? Pride, when we look at what pride really is in our hearts, it is something that we, we that that Raises us above that looks down upon other people. And remember, I said to you last week that there are three kinds of people in the world, right? Wise, foolish, and evil. Wise, foolish, and evil. Now, the reason we looked at this is because whenever you hear a sermon on pride or even talking about pride, we have a tendency to look at somebody else and say, oh, yeah, that's you, right? That's that, yeah, yeah, that's you, or that's that person, or that's that individual. But what we really have to say is pride lives in all of us. And so we looked at this, this, this kind of uh, metric of saying, what, what is pride in our lives? So I said to you that this, this is a spectrum of pride, right? On the one side, you have the humble. And on the other side, you have the proud. And I said to you that the wise are, are people who internalize the truth. So in other words, um, they're the kind of individuals who are on the spectrum, but like are on different ends here. So the wise will be people who say, okay, this is what is true and this is what I need to change. That's what the wise person's like. Remember, we look at the book of Proverbs and the book of Proverbs says, when you speak to a wise person and you tell them, you correct them, they, they love you. And the reason is because the wise person says, if there's a fault I have, if there's something I need to work on, they want to change. Right, we look at the foolish person. The foolish person externalizes the truth. They blame others or other circumstances. Well, it's not my fault. That's, that's your issue. Well, that may be right for you, but it's not right for me. 
The foolish externalize the truth, right? And what do the evil do? The evil manipulate the truth. The evil will take the truth and say, well, are you sure? Did God really say? Does the Bible really say? Is this really what God wants, right? So the evil will manipulate the truth. And I said last week, uh, two weeks ago, that your ability to change is in direct proportion to your pride. If you are unchangeable in who you are, that's actually not a great statement. It's actually more of a proud statement. Because what you're saying to yourself is that there's nothing that's going to change my mind or there's nothing that's going to make me do something differently. And that's actually an area of pride. And so when we, when we look at people in our lives or in ourselves and we say, well, you know, I keep banging my head against the wall and I'm wondering why it hurts. Well, you should stop, right? Remember the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again but expecting different results? What we really should be saying is the definition of a proud person is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, right? Pride is our inability to change, to look at things differently. And so the Bible looks at people and says, you're either wise, you're either foolish, and whether you're evil. And, and I said last time we were together, if we really want to be honest with ourselves, we're actually all three. We're actually all three. In different areas of our lives, we are all three. And we don't want to confess. We, we all want to say that we're wise. We some, sometimes say we're foolish, but the reality is we can be evil as well too. We can manipulate the truth as it suits us in certain areas of our lives. And we wrapped up looking at um, a passage of scripture uh, uh, talking about how humility, how, how Christ was the very epitome of uh, humility. Well, this morning we're going to look at the second deadly sin, which is envy. And envy is going to be a fun one because it's actually one of the sins that you actually hard to uh, uh, find out. Let's just take a look at this article I came across um, by Jennifer uh, Kunst. She is a PhD, and the article title was The Antidote to Envy. So, of course, I was very interested. She says this, But to my mind, envy is the deadliest of the seven deadlies, and in a category all of its own. Envy turns us against ourselves and others. It disturbs peace of mind, fueling shame and guilt. At its root, envy is felt to be so fundamentally bad because it highlights what is lacking and hates goodness itself. Now, again, remember, this is an article uh, that was in, a, was in a mental health magazine, not necessarily like a, like a Christian magazine. So she's saying that envy is one of those things we don't talk about, but in her mind, it was the worst of the seven deadly sins because of what it does. She goes on to say this, Shakespeare's green-eyed monster has been unleashed on steroids in our modern culture. Capitalism has cleverly engineered longing and desire. It is no surprise then that envy leaves a trail of depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, poor body image, and perfectionism, just to name a few of its troubling effects. Here's something else that's interesting about envy. So we saw that video at the beginning there about uh, Essa O'Neill. And so uh, for those of you who know or heard about her story, she was somebody on Instagram and she was growing and growing and growing. But then one day just for some reason just realized this, is, this, this, this cycle of trying to be perfect, of trying to get people to like her, trying to like people like her image and, and all that. It just it broke down and she realized something. And so she, she goes on and says, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm getting rid of all this. And then people attack her, which of course everyone does on Twitter. And, and, uh, and, and people go different directions. But it was really interesting what she was highlighting saying, listen, my entire life was trying to get people to think that I was this. But here's the reality. Studies have come out and said something kind of very interesting. Um, 
the uh, University of California, San Diego, uh, published this article. I'm going to read it to you. According to the University of California, San Diego paper published in the journal Basic and Applied Social Psychology, young adults are more envious than older adults. They are more envious over looks and for a wider range of other reasons, too. It is also appears that both men and women are more likely to envy someone who is approximately their own age. So what S. O'Neill was saying on Instagram is something that, the, that sociologists and psychologists are seeing is that young adults between the ages of 18 and 29 are the, are the demographic that, that envy is a part of, of who they are. That it has grown in, in this point of like being almost dysfunctional in their lives. The article goes on to say this. Envy was a common experience. More than three-fourths of all study participants reported experiencing envy in the last year. With slightly more women than men, so 79.4% to 74.1%. Envy is something that um, the younger generations are feeling more so than older generations. And, of course, the natural uh, connection is social media. One article I read, and I didn't want to go too deep into it, but it was very fascinating to me. They said that there has been an explosion within the wedding industry. Now, what they said was, you know, if you look at the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s there, uh, you know, photography, weddings, all that, they were, it costs money, but they said that there's other things now that just, it, is, it has been amped up in the last 10 years, and they say because of social media. See, it's not enough that a guy proposes to a girl anymore. They have to have clowns and, 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 and elephants and, and rockets and, 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 um, and, and airplanes over thing, and they have to have a photographer catching every moment because, of course, you have to do that. And, and so the article says that it's a lot of envies driving people's need to uh, kind of outdo. And then, of course, you have, you have the uh, pre-engagement photos, you have the post-engagement photos, you have mid-engagement, and you have... Po- like, like, it's just... We are amping, amping up. And the article is saying, and I thought it was very interesting that a lot of what's fueling this is not about people celebrating their own lives, which, of course, absolutely is a momentous day. Why wouldn't you? But they're saying it's because of what's seeing other people doing. And that envy of all that, it's like it fuels their own need to kind of outdo. It ramps it up. And, of course, the photographers and the wedding people, they're all kind of raking in the money on this. And, you know, you can have a whole conversation about the... uh, um, the ethics of that, but the point is this. The younger generations are feeling envy in a, in a greater way than they ever have because they are now confronted by other people's lives in a way that they've never had before. So envy is one of these things that uh, when you look at the seven deadly sins, you can go, well, okay, I get this one, I get that one, but envy, well, what's interesting is in our culture today, envy is skyrocketing. So this morning, we're going to take a look at envy, but before we do that, we need to kind of define a couple of terms. We often lump envy and jealousy together, but there is an important distinction. Jealousy is oriented toward what we possess. Envy is oriented toward the possession of others. Now, this is important. The reason this is important is because jealousy is saying, I am jealous that, uh, uh, that I don't have that car, that electronic device, that clothing, that... Uh, Whatever it would be. Jealousy is about an inanimate object. Envy is about what a person owns and possesses or experiences. That's the difference between envy. Um, Tim Callis kind of defines it this one. I think it's actually a really great definition. Who is envy? What does envy do? How do we define envy? Envy, uh, something like this. Envy makes you feel resentment or anger or sadness because another person has something or another person is something that you want for yourself. Envy makes you aware that another person has some advantage, some good thing that you want for yourself. And while he's at it, he makes you want that other person not have it at all. 
it goes on to say this. Envy is unique among the sins in that you never, ever enjoy it. Envy never brings any satisfaction. If you commit the sin of adultery, enjoy the fleeting pleasures of flesh. If you commit the sin of a gluttony, you get to enjoy the taste of food while it slides down your throat. These are very fleeting and fleshly pleasures, but they are pleasures still. Envy only ever makes you more miserable than you were before. Envy is desire turned against yourself so that it takes away from your own enjoyment of what you have in your own life. So what you have to understand about envy, envy isn't a what, but a who. This is really important to understand here. Envy isn't about a thing. It's about a person that has that thing. And so we're going to unpack what that looks like and kind of talk a, a little bit of how the Bible views it. So remember I said to you that there is a process of pride. There is a process of pride, but there is a story of envy. See, pride can be a process. It can, it can happen in our own selves and we can, we can work through it. But envy is a story about someone else. And there's three steps to envy as well too. The first part of envy is we must be confronted with a person or persons with a superior or different quality, achievement, or possession. And the different part's kind of important. You can envy somebody not because they have something better than you. That's just different. And because we love different and new and, and different things, it's like, I, you know, I didn't really think it was so great, but now that that person has it, I really want it, right? The second part is we must desire that quality for ourselves or wish the other person lacked it. So envy says, you know what? It's not good enough that they have it. I wish they didn't have it. And I kind of wish that I had it. So that's the second part to envy. And the third part is, we must be pained by the associated emotion. In other words, it's not enough to say, well, I wish that, like it hurts you, right? Now, do you see why social media can totally fuel this absolute obsession with other people's uh, experiences, right? Like again, how often have you, you know, been on a social media, Facebook, Twitter, or something like that, and you've seen a picture of a person on a beach? I want to be on a beach. Why does that person get to go to the beach? They don't earn more than me. How do they get this free time? And, and, and who are, like, like we begin, our, our minds can go in different ways. Like, I, I really don't want that. There's a great story of envy in the Bible between two incredible characters in the Old Testament. One guy was named Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And the other guy named was David, who was the second king of Israel. And these two individuals have this antagonistic, and I don't want to say word, use the word frenemy, but uh, there's definitely this, this, this envious relationship between the two of them. So the first time that we see Saul encountering David is kind of interesting, right? So you know the story of David and Goliath. I'm not going to unpack that. You, you kind of have that in your back of your mind there. But what's interesting is what happens after the battle. Remember when David comes to Saul and says, okay, I'm going to fight Goliath. And I was like, whatever. But you're, since no one else wants to, you're up. And Saul says, take my armor. And David's like, I, I can't wear this, right? So he goes out and, and he fights Goliath. And of course, we know that uh, he defeats Goliath and he chops his head off. But now, watch what happens right after. In 2 Samuel chapter 17, verses 57 to 58, look what happens here. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with David still holding the Philistine's head. And look at Saul's response. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, stop there for a moment. Saul knows who David is. Because David was just there a couple of hours ago trying on his armor. Right? So Saul knows who David is. Saul thought that David would die. And actually, Saul maybe wanted David to die. Because if the enemies defeat, if, if Goliath defeated David, 
At least Saul could say, well, we tried. So, and they can go back to their normal lives. So now David, now just picture this for a second, okay? David, this young kid, again, we don't know exactly David's age. Some hypothesize between 15 and 17 years old, thereabouts. In his hand is this monstrous head of Goliath. Like, like he's standing there, right? And he's got this. And the head, of course, is the trophy. And so as David is taken through the camp of all these soldiers, some veterans of many wars, this, this young shepherd walks through the camp with this head, right? It's, it's almost like coming from somewhere a Halloween thing, right? And a trail of blood goes with them. And he stands before the king, the most powerful person in Israel, with this trophy in his hand. And of course, Saul says, like, he's saying, like, who are you? But he's really like, who do you think you are? Right? Now look at verse 18, verse 2 says, From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Whatever David was to Saul, Saul envied what David was. It wasn't who David was. It wasn't the fact that David had that head in his hand. All Saul could think of is, I wish I had that. Because it's stature, it's performance, it's elevation amongst other people. It's, 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 it's an accomplishment that he wasn't able to have. Now look at the second part, right? Because the second part is desire. In verse 7 8, again, a couple of verses down from chapter 18. What do they chant about David, right? Saul has slayed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now look at this. Saul was greatly angered. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but only me with only thousands. And what more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, just, just think about that for a second, okay? They say of Saul, Saul's killed thousands. I don't know about you, but in, in, a, in a time of hand-to-hand combat where there are no guns, thousands isn't bad, you know? Like some guy's like, I, I got a dozen? Uh, I, I got three? Uh, well, this one guy tripped and fell on a sword, so I got that one. I got one, right? So, you know, there's, in, in, in war, you're like, ah, like hand-to-hand combat, you know, thousands isn't bad. But see, what you have to understand about envy, it's not enough. It's not enough. Envy is about the realization that somebody else has something that you possess. And so Saul's desire of wanting David's acclaim, of David's uh, um, uh, soldiering, was what he wanted the most. What Saul wanted more than anything is people to sing songs about him. But they turned it now and they're singing it about David. And when you read through uh, uh, further on in, in, in chapter 18, Saul begins to send David on... I wouldn't call them suicide missions, but I would say that basically he kept sending him and sending him, hoping this, this kid would die. Like he sends him in harder and harder battles. Like he's trying to get rid of, of, this, of this person who is somebody he wants out of his way because he's taken from his glory. He's taken away from his acclaim. Now, of course, the, the third part of envy is pain. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michal, Michael, loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his day. This is again further on chapter 18. Chapter 17 and 18 is the entire story of David and Saul. And from chapter 18 onwards, when David is pursued by Saul and all the other stories we hear about him, these two chapters set up Saul's antagonism towards David. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with the spear. I don't know about you, but that, that, that tells you something. You know, sometimes you're like, does that person like me or not? When they throw a spear at you, I think all doubts are pretty much gone, right? This is how 
this is how insane Saul becomes towards David. And this is what envy does. It, it starts off as a small little idea. Why does this person have that? And it grows inside of you to the point where you lash out. That you become this person that you almost don't even recognize anymore. And because Saul is king, right? David has no other option but to leave because who's going to arrest the king? They didn't have impeachment back then, right? So this is the moment that David says, okay, uh, this is a good part-time job, but uh, I, think I'm gonna, I think I'd rather go tackle some lions and some bears, right? Because this is, this is getting downright dangerous. But this is the process. This is the story of envy. But what you need to understand about envy most and more, uh, for, first and foremost is envy exposes your deepest desires. Now, let me show you something here. The story of envy is not about what the person possesses, it's that you wished you possessed it, right? So it's like you going out and buying a cat. I don't know why anybody would do that, but some people do, right? And then somebody goes out and buys a different kind of cat or a dog. You're like, oh, wow, this cat is useless, which all cats are, right? But this cat is useless, right? I want this other cat, or I want this dog, or I want this hairless cat, or I want, you know, I want something different, right? It's not about what you have. It's about what somebody else has that's different, that's new, that's better, right? It could be an electronic device. It could be a relationship. Uh, in the article that I read, I referenced, I should post the whole thing. You should read through it. But they said it's, it's things like, in, in the young adults, it's, it's looks, it's hairstyle, it's, it's electronics, it's jobs. They said there's nothing greater uh, trigger for envy than your graduation and somebody lands a job and you work at McDonald's. Right, I, I'm 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 electrical engineer. Would you like fries with that? You know that they said, and again, this is getting a little uncomfortable for some people in the room here. But they said that that is something that creates envy, envy. And so what happens is you could be great friends with a person, but then the switch is flipped, and you can't stand them because they have something that you don't. That's what envy does, is it takes any goodness in your life and it saps it of that. But what it really does is it exposes your deepest desires. Because what your desires is, you wish you had that. And maybe you can't admit it. Maybe you can't say, I, I, I want that for myself. And instead of saying that, you then funnel it through a person. Envy is about what other people possess. Now, there are consequences of envy. and The Bible kind of gives us some great uh, analogies for it. The first thing about envy is envy rots. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, it says this, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Now, I just need you to understand something. Envy is this, this, this mental health, this, this spiritual, it's like a cancer inside of you that just saps energy. It doesn't matter what you have. Somebody has something better than you, and therefore, whatever you have is not good enough, and there's no enjoyment in it. That's what envy is. And so the proverb says it, it rots the bones. It's this beautiful in, an image of like, if your bones are rotting, you have, you have no strength in you and you're frail and, and, and everything about you just hurts. That's what envy does. Is you cannot enjoy what you have because that person, that person's has something more, something different. So the first thing we need to understand about envy, the consequence of envy is that envy rots. The second thing about envy is envy is anti-love. Whatever love is, envy is the opposite. You've been at a wedding, you've heard this verse, this scripture read, right? In 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, nor or boast or is arrogant. So envy is the antithesis, the absolute opposite of whatever love is. 
right? Love is generous. Love is caring. Love cares more about the other person than they do about themselves. What is envy? Envy is the exact opposite of it. Do you understand why it is so dangerous to your spiritual health? That if you were a person racked with envy, if you were a person that has envy in your life, you will not have love, true love in there because this thing, this person, this relationship, that object, whatever it would be, envy just, just, it saps all of your strength. And the third consequence of envy is envy destroys worship. I was going to teach on a passage of scripture in Psalm 73. If you get a chance and write this down somewhere, just read Psalm 73. It is the psalm, it's the, it's the psalm of envy. It really is. Uh, I've taught on it before. That's why I didn't go back to teach on it again. But Psalm 73 is, is incredible because the psalmist is as honest as you can possibly get, right? In the beginning of the psalms, the psalmist is looking around at the world and saying, listen, why do the arrogant, the proud, the boastful, why are they healthy, beautiful? Why do people love them? Right? You can just see him looking at these people, just feeling the envy. In Psalm 73, 3, it says this, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, the psalmist, whoever he is, believes something that perhaps we may believe as well too. That riches, wealth, and health means God is blessing you. Hashtag blessed. We've already done that series. We're not going to go back to that. But remember I said to you, God's blessing looks a little different, right? Remember, go back to Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. God's blessing looks a little different than the world's blessing. But the psalmist has forgotten that. What does he say? I envied the beautiful, the proud. You can look at the world today and say, why is it people, you know, look at these individuals who are just horrible people, but people flock to them. People listen to whatever they say. And the psalmist is saying, for I envied these individuals. And the first half of the psalm is him not being able to go before God because envy had so robbed him of his relationship with God. Because part of the part of envy that you may not understand is that it is all these things, but it also says to us, does God not love me? Can I not have these things too? Why don't I have that vacation? Why don't I have that relationship, that house, that job, that, again, insert whatever it is there. Why can't I have that? Does God not love me? So we have envy in us, and we start to look around us saying, why do they have those things? Why can't I have those things? And it robs us of whatever God has for us. And it doesn't matter what stage of life you're at. It doesn't matter how much you have. If somebody has a dollar more, if somebody has something more, then you look at them saying, why not me? Why not me? So here's a cure for envy before we kind of go any further here. So envy has a cure. So let me tell you a true story. So through the series, I have been praying that as I've been teaching on this, I want to ask the Lord to reveal to me if any of the issues that I'm going to teach on. So we're going to go through all seven of them. But I, ha- I pray before I said, Lord, if this exists in my life, show it to me. Now, I will can say something to you. I don't really think I'm an envious person. I, I didn't think I was. And so I was praying about it. I said, Lord, if there is any, and I was kind of saying it in a kind of like haphazard way, kind of like, ah, you know, I, I, I don't really deal with it, right? And as soon as I said it, the Lord brought someone's, someone to mind. Now, when you talk to the Lord, he talks back. That's terrifying, just to be clear about that, okay? And so he mentioned someone to me, and I thought, what? No. No. Maybe. Oh. 
oh. And I started thinking about it. And I went, this, this is not even a joke. I, could, I, could, I was going to take a screenshot of my phone on the screen, but I don't want to do that. Um, the person that the Lord placed in my mind texted me. Like after that happened, he texted me. I hadn't heard from him in like three weeks, four weeks there. And there's no reason for him texting me. We weren't having lunch. We had no appointments scheduled, nothing. And he texted me. And he asked me a question about the book of Proverbs because him and I were talking about it a couple months back. And he said, hey, what is it, what is it you told me? And I'm looking at this. I'm like, what are you trying to do, Lord? And he said to me, confess it. Confess your envy of this person to him. And of course, when the Lord tells you to do something uncovered, like, right? Because when the Lord brought him to mind, the Lord said to me, confess it. And I was like, yeah, sure. But it's one of those things like, I'm not going to do that, right? And then the the dude texts me. And it's like, oh, okay, God, you really want me to do this. So without answering his Proverbs question, I texted him back like a two thumber. You don't have to kind of do two thumbs on your uh, screen. I'm like, hey, just so you know, I was praying this morning and I was asking God to reveal if I have envy in my life and (laughs) LOL, your name popped up. And I just want to confess to you that I have been envious of you and that I didn't realize it, but the Lord showed this to me and so I want to confess it to you, right? And, and I just, I kind of went on and I don't know what my friends think on the other. I'm like, he's praying like, like what? Like what? Like where did this come from, right? But I just felt the Lord was saying it to me, right? Because the first part of confession is relational. Because this guy that I envy, I like him a lot. A little bit too much apparently because I like what he's doing as well too in his ministry where God has him. Apparently, I was a little bit more than I thought I was about that. So the first part of envy is confession but it's, it's a restoration of relationship. And so I texted him, and I was as brutally honest as I could possibly say to him. I'm like, okay, listen, this is what God says to me. I'm telling you all this right now, right? Because the secondary part of, of envy you have to do is you have to expose it. And this is the spiritual part. Because here's the thing. If you don't expose it, the enemy can continue to use it. It is a weight that's in your spirit that he will use, and it will rob you of anything. And just to be clear, pastors... Probably are the most envious bunch of them all. Because it doesn't matter what ministries we have, it doesn't matter what sermons we preach, it doesn't matter what goes on, someone's got it cooler. Someone's got it better. Someone's got it newer. Someone's got this. Someone's got that. Right? So pastors, we can be kind of petty this way a little bit, right? And I thought, mistakenly, that it wasn't my issue, but the Holy Spirit showed me that it was. Not to a whole bunch of people, just this one dude. A guy I like. By the way, I'm not telling you his name. Um, but uh, this individual, I was, and I realized that. And I never would have thought that beforehand until the Holy Spirit revealed it to me. And so I exposed it. And the last part is, I released it. By telling him about it, by exposing it, right? I released it. And this is personal. This is the personal part of it. You know, I can't tell you the burden that I didn't even realize was on my life until I confessed it. And I can't tell you how that relationship with this person, and by the way, this person that I, I the Lord showed me I envied, I really like him. I think he's a godly individual. I think he's, he, he, he is, somebody's doing some great work where he's at. And, but our relationship had gotten a little bit toxic. And not toxic in like, in like you know, like I'm gonna say angry things, but toxic in the sense of like I had to be keeping my distance a little bit. He's the kind of guy that would you know, reach out to me, ask me like Bible stuff and all that. And I would reach out to him, ask him stuff as well too. But I didn't realize that. But then it's like, oh, 
I envy him. Because of that, that, that relationship became toxic. And so I, can, I confessed all this to him. And do you know his response? I'm going to read it to you. Uh, because this is a real life conversation and, and this actually happened. And I know this is going to seem kind of weird. And I'm not going to put this up on, uh, on, the, uh, on the screen there. But he said to me, sorry, a lot of people text me. Um, he said, brother, it's truly amazing how the spirit does this to us as preachers. We unveil for others, yet the spirit does the true work in us. Well done for listening to his direction. I appreciate the confession. I am truly thankful for your mentorship instruction and these young people. They're, uh, yeah, that part there, don't worry about that. Um, but he, as a pastor, heard this and he was like, he's like, you know what? Thanks for confessing it. Had no idea about it. I had no idea. But envy does that about us. It is this subtle sin that is in our life that can absolutely sap us of any joy what the Lord will do. And it's like ashes in your mouth because you can't taste or enjoy life because somebody else has it more than you. That's what envy is. And I was going to make this all spiritual for you in the sense of like confess it. Well, I think you can figure this all out for yourself. Right? Confession. Just to confess to the Lord. Right? Expose it. There's nothing more humiliating or humbling than telling somebody you envy them. Because it puts you in a lesser position and you place yourself, your pride in that person is like, I'm sorry. I didn't realize this exists, but this did. This did. And his response to me, of course, was um, gracious and kind because that's who he is. And of course, we're, ha- we're, ha- we're having lunch next week. So, you know, because I need to grovel a little bit more. But, you know, we, I, I need to see what's going on in his brain as well, too. But I, I just, I literally said, I said to the Lord, Lord, expose this to me. It came up. I ignored it. He texted me. So it's like, okay, God, I will confess this to him. But this is how we destroy envy in our lives is by being honest in the relationships we have. Because this guy that I was envious, I want him to speak into my life. I do. I want him to speak into my life and I want him to, to correct or challenge. And, 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 and if he feels he needs to speak into me because of my relationship, if I, have, if I have wronged him anyway, I will humble myself into that as well too. Why? Because I was in the wrong in this. So by confessing it, exposing it, and releasing it, we release ourselves. Remember the psalmist in Psalm 73? He has that encounter with God, and look how he changes his tune. Whom do I have in heaven but you? I desire, more than, I desire you more than anything on earth. Charles Spurgeon, I'm going to close with this, um, a great preacher, teacher in, in, in the faith, wrote this um, devotional poem about uh, us being satisfied in God. That's what Charles Spurgeon says. He who delights in the possession of the Lord Jesus has all that heart, all that the heart can wish. As for created things, they are like shallow and deceitful brooks. They fail to supply our needs, much less our wishes. The bed of earthly enjoyment is shorter than a man can stretch himself onto, on it, and the covering narrower than he can wrap himself in it. Look what he says then next. The creature without Christ is an empty thing, a lamp without oil, a bone without marrow. But when Christ is present, our cup runs over and we eat bread to the full. And for those of you who are gluten-free, it's gluten-free bread. So what's the point of this, right? Charles Spurgeon is saying something that I think is so important to us today. Envy exposes our desires because we desire what somebody else has. But if you confess it and understand it properly, Jesus should be our fulfillment. 
Jesus should be your fulfillment. And it doesn't matter what other people have, what what they possess, the vacations they go on. It doesn't matter all these things. Why? Because you have Jesus. And this is what Christians around the world in persecuted countries and countries where it's illegal to be Christians, they understand this, that governments have taken away their jobs, their families, their freedom, imprisoned them, but they can never take Jesus away from them. And the question I began to ask myself once I confessed this was what the psalmist in Psalm 174, 107 says. We read it this morning for our group, but I want to share it with you this, this morning. Psalm 107, and here's another psalm you should read through this week as well too. It's fantastic. It's this idea of, of cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. The cause is uh, sometimes we sin, sometimes things happen. What do we do with that, right? And the Psalm 107 talks about that. And Psalm 107 verse 4 to 9 says this, some wandered the desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to the city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for, his man, for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. The, the, the psalmist in this particular psalm, but also several dozen others, uses theme of, of hunger and thirst. And he turns it around and he says, what do you hunger and thirst for? You're going to hunger and thirst for the things of the world, but they won't satisfy you. And for those of us in this room who have, have chased after things and, and, and then gotten it, you're like, oh, that's it? Okay, I'm going to go after that thing now. Oh, I'm going I'm to chase after that thing. And the question I have been asking myself is are you satisfied with Jesus? Are, uh, it's kind of a dumb question, isn't it? Because the correct answer is, well, of course, of course I'm satisfied with Jesus. Why, 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 why wouldn't I be? Right? Like we, we become flustered when we ask a question. But envy tells us we're not. Because if we are truly satisfied with Jesus, if somebody gets an accomplishment, we just say, praise the Lord, good for you. If someone gets to have something or does something we, 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 we haven't done, we go, Whatever. It doesn't matter. Because I've got Jesus. Are you satisfied with Jesus? It is something that I've been thinking about a lot, actually. Because since I planted this church four years ago, it's been a, uh, a growth process in my own life. A growth in the sense of like what God wants to do. Growth in the sense of faith and, and believing kind of the, the vision the, in the future of the church. And there's more to learn, more to grow. Still not there yet. The question I've been thinking about since that point where the Holy Spirit showed, some, showed me where envy was in my life, is am I, am I satisfied with Jesus? Is, is Jesus enough for me? If, if nothing else works out, if other hopes and dreams work out, if people who hurt or people who whatever, are you satisfied with Jesus? I've really been thinking about that. And it's been kind of keeping me up a little bit in the sense of like, because I have to be honest, the answer is no. I, I want Jesus and. Jesus plus. And the Bible keeps coming back to me and the Spirit keeps coming back to me. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. And if you understand that all your desires are met in Christ, that it doesn't matter what someone possesses, it doesn't matter what they have, what they don't have, it doesn't matter about all these things in our lives, because we come back to the truth of the absolute utmost reality is that we have Jesus. And if that's not enough, nothing ever will be. 
If Jesus isn't enough, then nothing ever will be. We talk about UCC a lot in, uh, in the sense of saying, we're not here to perform, we're not here to entertain you, you're not here to, all these type of, we, we kind of go back on that, it's in your update if you want to read it. And, and the kind of the idea behind that is that we think that God is enough, that Jesus is enough. And there's not explosions, there's not like, you know, jugglers and, and you know, all these type of things. It, it's not that because that's not what's important. If you can't be satisfied in God and what he wants for you, nothing will do it. Whatever desire, whatever appetite you have will always grow, will always increase, and you'll always want more, more, more. But what Charles Spurgeon says that a person without Christ is an empty thing, he's absolutely right. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, we do this every week. It's just an opportunity for you to think, to meditate, to ponder, to reflect. I want you, as no one's looking around, just to ask the question by the Holy Spirit right now. I did it. It wasn't fun. But is there envy in your life? Is there envy in your life? And the real way of saying that is, who do you envy? Who has something that you want? Who has accomplished something you want? Is there envy in your life? Envy is a deadly sin because it is a sin that just robs us of joy. It robs us of worship. It rots us on the inside and no one can see it. I learned that. I'm learning it. Who do you envy? Is envy an issue for you? As I've been speaking this morning, as I've been showing you examples, I've been talking about it. Some of you this morning, and I feel this very strongly in this room, that the Holy Spirit's just been poking you. Just been maybe even bringing someone to your mind, a relationship that you have, whether physical or digital, doesn't matter. And envy is something you are struggling with. If that's you right now, just confess it. Confess it to the Lord. Confess it to the Holy Spirit right now. He knows it's there. This is a diagnostic tool. This is the way you get to say, Lord, what's holding me back from you? And envy is what holds you back from God. God gives you what you need and gives others what they need. Don't desire somebody else's life, others' gifts, others' accomplishments, others' successes. It's not for you. So if you have something in your mind right now, here is your homework. Don't look around yet. Will you call, text, email, or even face-to-face coffee with that person this week. And just do what I did. Holy Spirit, reveal that I envy you. And I'm so sorry. And I confess it. Confess, expose, release. This is how we get rid of envy in our lives. That's your homework this week. If you truly want to be transformed, if you truly want to just feel what God wants for your life, Just get rid of envy and confess it to whoever it is that you envy. Remember, envy isn't a what, it's a who. Who do you envy? And would you confess that to them so that you can be released of that burden, released of that posture 
And then once you've done that, you want to pray this prayer. Jesus, satisfy me. Be the longing of my heart. Be, the, be everything that I want. My desires, my hopes, my dreams, let they rest in you. And that's what I've been praying a lot. God, let me be satisfied in you. Let me be satisfied in what you have for me. Okay. No one looking around. I'm going to ask you a question. I want to pray, but I just feel before, I was just about to pray, the Lord said, just do this first. If you are struggling with envy, no one looking around, I want to close with a prayer, but I want to pray for you. And if that's you, just lift your hand right now. And I want to make sure I pray for you. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. The reason you did that is because you confessed openly. No one saw you. And I'm going to forget in a few seconds whoever did it anyways. But you said to the Lord, Lord, I want you more than I want this thing in my life. And you put your hand up. You just lifted it. You just, you put it there and you said, yeah. And the Holy Spirit saw that and God saw that. It takes courage. It takes honesty. It takes humility. And God will honor that. He will walk with you through that. Holy Spirit, I thank you for each person in this room that raised their hand. God, I don't know who they are. I don't know their journeys. But I do know this. You want to restore them to a right relationship with you and the person that they envy. I pray right now, Jesus, that you would give us a strength to have that initial conversation. God, I remember when I was texting this friend of mine who I envied, I felt ashamed and humiliated. I felt dumb. I just, I felt all these things, but all these things were necessary so that I could grow. And as soon as I sent that text, I felt relief that I at least had openly said it. And God, I pray that each person in this room that raised their hand would feel that right now in Jesus' name that they would this week find the courage and find the humility to be able to have a conversation with this individual or individuals who perhaps envy might be an issue for them. God, please forgive us for hiding these things in dark places of our hearts and our minds. You know that they're there. I pray right now in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would release us from that right now. And that God, we would feel a restored relationship with you, a restored sense of worship, a restored sense of health, and restored relationships. God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you care for us and you are merciful and compassionate. And I pray in Jesus' name that we would always be a humbled people before you, that we would change and transform into Jesus' image, not anybody else's image, but Jesus' image, because that's what you want from us. I pray for your encouragement and strength throughout this week, God, as we have these difficult conversations. But Lord, I pray we'd feel burdens just lifted off of us by bringing to light, exposing light into dark places, God. I thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen.